From my childhood to where I am now I ain't gonna worry, I'll get by somehow My mama had them, Lord my daddy had them too I, I was born with the blues I'll tell you something people I can't believe the title of this thing. This is Dave Burkus, and you are listening to Sassholes. Welcome to Sassholes, with a combined 100 years of making interesting decisions. Jamie, Justin, and myself, Pete, are dedicated to helping sales leaders or aspiring sales leaders accelerate revenues with our no-bias approach to sales leadership strategies and tactics. Please subscribe to us on our YouTube and Apple podcast. Today, our guest is Dave Burkus. Dave is an early stage venture capitalist with a hands-on background in technology. An entrepreneur for over 50 years, he formed and managed successful businesses in entertainment and software arenas. He's also a respected technology industry leader and spokesperson. But before we get to Dave Burkus, we got some Patreon love to dish out. Our show is supported by listeners and viewers just like you. We'd like to thank the Man Farm Winalytics, Trent S. and Aaron J. for their continued support. Demandfarm.com, unlock key account growth, smart software to bring account planning and relationship intelligence into your CRM, making key account management practice data-driven, predictable, and scalable. Go to Demandfarm.com, ask for Iron Man. Hey, check out Brent Keltner's Revenue Acceleration Playbook Masterclass at Winalytics.com. In eight weeks, help your sales and go-to-market team start to build the mindset and skills needed to succeed in a new buyer environment. Sign your team up for the Masterclass today at Winalytics.com. If you'd like to help us out to improve the quality of our content, go to Patreon.com slash Sassholes. Okay, time for shout-outs. Jeff Goulang got a new job as controller of Remini. Hopefully I said that right. I probably didn't. Brian Donahue, old school, two years at Slack. Emily Hyde got promoted to Senior Director of Sales, Training and Effectiveness at Upwork. Dan Santucci, one year at St. Pat's High School as president. Congrats. Joel Cheeseman, my old curmudgeon friend, one year at Recruitology. Lorena Morales, one year at JLL. Mike Spiegel, the counselor, three years at LinkedIn. Nick, the general Schwarzkopf, promoted to senior enterprise account manager at Upwork. Amanda Durancio, new position, senior account executive at On the Stage. Rachel Sesserman, four years at LinkedIn. Ben Dockery started a new position as executive director at Lake Light Institute. Hey, Carney. Yeah, Pete. Carney. Yeah. Come on. Let's go. It's horrible. What do, you, what do you call a beehive without an exit? Unbelievable. Please subscribe to her. <laughs> YouTube channel. You can't even give me a badge. It's nothing. so bad. That is not even beyond worth i just want to get over with this it's painful all right all right dave burkus thank you so much for joining us today on the show hey pete glad to be here angel investor you are one of the originals man first of all for the new people that come to our show because we get a lot of new sales people a lot of new sales managers what defines an angel investor i mean do you come from you know out of the sky and 
halo over you or that's me (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i sold my computer company in 1990 ran it for the public buyer for three years and then took that money and started investing in entrepreneurs because for the two businesses that I'd run from the age of 15 until then, which was about 50, I uh, had never had a coach. And I decided it was time to do that. And so I wrote a book uh, in 1993, I wrote it in 94, called Better Than Money. And the whole precept was one I've repeated so many times now that I don't want to repeat it again, but it basically says you don't take dumb money, you take smart money because these people can do and the whole book lists what they can do in five sentences. But I don't want to do that because then you'd never buy the book. <laughs> and uh, three years later, Inc. Magazine, well, yeah, three years later, Inc. Magazine did a profile on me and uh, drew a Superman with wings and called me a super angel. Uh, that was one of the first term times that that term had ever been used. A year after or before that, uh, Howard Stevenson of uh, the Harvard Business School wrote a book, and he called it Winning Angels. And that kind of uh, blessed the title, and nobody had really used it except for Broadway before that time. And he uh, profiled seven of us. And when he did that, I think it gave me some credibility. I had developed a way of valuing pre-revenue businesses, which nobody had ever thought of doing before. Most people had tried to use the financial forecasts and work backwards to present value. And I said, garbage, nobody ever makes their financial forecasts. And so I developed a method called, as Howard Stevenson called it, the Berkus method. It's been used now by what we had estimated as over a million businesses worldwide. And uh, it's probably what made my name. Now, now that method, when, when you look at, uh, at a, an, an investment, now I'm going to butcher this, but you give a certain amount of money, insert here, $2,500, you're betting on the people themselves, right? The concept. How, how does that work, Dave? First of all, the numbers were 50,000 to a million and sometimes more. So the tw- <laughs> $2,500 sure sounds <laughs> Bottom line. Insert yeah, number I bought here. Lunch, right. <laughs> uh, no, these were early days. Yeah. And in the early days, it was easier to have a hit because there was far less in the way of competition for the money. And uh, when I first started in 93, uh, the only way that I could get deal flow was because it was before the internet could help me and the entrepreneurs didn't know how to find me. So I went to the vice president of Silicon Valley Bank and uh, whom I'd known, and said, uh, you know, I know you probably turned down a lot of early stage businesses that you really can't finance, but you'd like to if they were bigger. Why don't you hand me the ones you like? I said the same thing to a venture capitalist in Orange County, California. And uh, he said the same thing. It's a great way to say, and I invented that term for myself, yes, but instead of no. And so these people handed me my first deal flow. And some of those deals turned out to be really good. And I handed them right back. So you're not considered a venture capitalist. You're considered an angel investor, right? Is that, is that, does that delineation mean pre-revenue or just very early, early stage before the venture capitalists come in? Jamie, that's such a great question because there has been such a change. When I first started this, there were two groups. I guess three, because we never recognized friends, family, and fools. Uh, 
But uh, the first investors were the angels. Now, of course, we recognize that it's your friends that uh, ordinarily supply the first bucks. And then we would feed the venture capitalists whom we all knew. There weren't there that many of them. And the ones we liked that we thought would uh, help our reputation and the companies, we would feed to them. It was a great chain. Uh, that chain was broken 10 years ago. And now it is so convoluted that to explain it in a single podcast would kill you. But let me try a little bit. Friends and families and fools, accelerators and incubators, uh, which you probably know to be uh, professional organizations that sometimes put a little bit of money, $25,000 maybe, for a piece of a company. And then they run them through, run the uh, entrepreneurs through a uh, series of lectures that they call classes. Uh, then come the angels. The angels are very rarely pre-revenue now, although occasionally they are. Uh, they've gone upstream because they've been damaged too many times. I'll give you some numbers in a minute. And then from the angels uh, come not any longer the VCs. It's the micro VCs. Micro VCs are the old employees and partners that have split off from their VC firms that now raise small funds, 40 to 70 million, and they invest anywhere from 500,000 to a million and a half, maybe 2 million. And then come the VCs who have moved so far upstream, you can't even see them without a binoculars because they were putting a partner on the board of every company they invested in. You can imagine how that would split the partners and require them to have more than just a few boards. And so they began investing not just the usual $2 million, uh, but $5 million and 10 and then even more. And then there is private equity, and there are a lot more variants, but that's it. That's this new landscape that is just so hard for people to understand when they say, I've got an idea, and I don't know who to send it to. That's fascinating. I know uh, the PE firms are sending a lot of partners on the board as well. And well, they're mm -hmm. giving everyone a little ownership of it. And then there's Series A. I mean, I, I work for a Series D startup and, yeah. and the, the venture capital board uh, is just so complex and unique. And when I'm talking to my boss, we talk about it all the time about how crazy this is. I have so many stories. In fact, yeah. you know, I've written a lot of books, but uh, those books come from the stories I've learned. So let me give you the stats that I promised a minute ago. Okay. I have seen over 10,000 business plans. I am the former chairman and one of the founders of Tech Coast Angels. And through the Tech Coast Angels, I don't know what their number is. It has to be more than 10,000. I haven't seen all those directly, but my associates have. So from those, I picked 208 altogether now. Uh, that's only two in the last uh, four or five years because I've stopped investing. I'm 81. And it takes 11 years on the average for liquidity, which means an M&A or an IPO. And I ain't going to make that bet. Not right now, not right me. So I've invested in 208. Uh, 39 of them have gone public or have uh, been sold at a good profit. Uh, about 46 or 7 of those in that range uh, have gone broke. And I haven't heard from the other 100 and do your number, 112. Uh, I haven't heard from a lot of those CEOs because they go silent. They may or may not be in business. And you try and ferret out what they are by looking at their website. If they still have a website, we usually count them as a business. <laughs> if the website is expired, we know that we don't. Uh, it's a difficult business. 
And so you don't, you, you don't, you can't recoup any of that money, right? They just no. get it. And they... No. And in fact, the way we invest uh, used to be in plain old common stock, and then it was preferred stock. And then Y Combinator came along uh, 15 years ago and said, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to have legal fees? Let's give you this thing we call a safe, a simple access to funding something or other safe. Yeah. Uh, and a safe is nothing but a single piece of paper that promises you that someday you'll get equity whenever there's a round. Now, that's not debt and it's not equity. I can give you lots of things about why you never want to use a safe. I hate them. Most angels hate them. VCs won't touch them. And yet that was the way that Y Combinator made hundreds and hundreds of investments. Simple. Wow. Uh, anyway, that got off the subject, but on the subject, you don't recoup your money. Uh, in a liquidation, a preferred stock, which is what we normally invest in, gets its money before the founders and the early investors' common stock. Mm -hmm. You know how few times I've ever gotten my money back on any kind of a liquidation? <laughs> um, uh, I think I can count on one hand. Maybe I can't even get that far. It just isn't much at all. But oh, Dave, wow. you got some stories where you have recouped. Uh, you want to oh, share a couple? Yeah. yeah, well, I can, first of all, let me give you the one where I didn't recoup anything. Right, a lot right. of those. Uh, I'll give you two of those. Then we'll at least set the stage for the bigger or the better okay, ones. Okay, okay, all right. Uh, one of those was a company in the industry I came from, which was hotel computer software. I was one of the very, very early uh, creators of software for hotel reservations and hotel front office. And uh, that software, which was way back, I started writing it in 1971. Uh, Marriott, by the way, uh, licensed it from me for today's value of three million bucks in 1982. 1982. And it was for what was to be 50 hotels that they were to call courtyards. Today, I hope I don't date this podcast, is 2022. And uh, you can do the calculation of 40 years. And they are still using it for 4,000 Marriott properties. They've tried to replace it three times. They sent out an RFP a year ago this month. I haven't yet heard who won it. <laughs> So, uh, you think you were undersold it then for three million bucks back then? Well, they had to buy my hardware. I was reselling the hardware, and at those times, in many computers, you almost had to stay with the same brand before Unix became popular. And so, I sold eleven million more hardware to them. So, I'm not unhappy at all. Oh yeah, okay, that makes more sense. It was um, okay. So that gets off on the thing. So now back to that story. One of the companies that I financed was in that industry, and I understood it well. You know, when you go to a hotel or Starbucks or somewhere, you usually have to see a page that says, uh, I uh, give up my rights. Uh, here is my room number. Here is my name. Here's my credit card, whatever it be. That's called redirection. And this company hadn't invented it, but this was the company that was making the money off of it. And so I invested. I brought in uh, uh, a very well-known venture capitalist to come along with me. And uh, we started to build that company. And we attracted the most famous venture capital company whose name I will not mention. <laughs> and its partner, one of his partners, uh, sat on the board, sat there silent for three monthly meetings, and then said, this is not an interesting company. I want to stop sales 
to the hotel industry, which we all knew, and uh, have you go back to the drawing boards and do this for the Fortune 50. And we, of course, will finance you when you get done doing that. And you tell us it's about six months. And we will therefore see a big business result from what we saw after investing was a small business. They had put $5 million into it. Six months went by. The management demonstrated to the board. And I remember as if it was yesterday, and it wasn't, quote, my partners have voted to give no more money to this company. Close, quote, end of company, gone. So the bank got whatever money was left. Company was closed. They didn't make any money, the other investor. We didn't make any money. I want to remind you, the company was profitable and growing when this started. That's number one. Good story. Bad story. <laughs> and the other one is uh, my uh, hotel computer company had a couple of executives that I stole after uh, my time allowing to steal them was up after I'd left. And uh, we brainstormed what would be a great thing for the hotel industry that hadn't been done before. And in those days, which was 1996, seven and eight, cell phones were analog. You guys remember that. A lot of the oh, listeners yeah. will not. And analog phones could not roam. You'd pay a dollar a minute in New York if you were in Los Angeles, if you came from Los Angeles. So you didn't really use your cell phone. When you went to a hotel, you'd use the hotel phone or you'd ask your assistant or somebody else to call the hotel room, but you'd be stuck. You'd be waiting for that call. So we said, ah, we have the answer. And so we went to Korea. We had a chip put into a analog cell phone that redirected the calls. When they came into uh the room, it would be redirected to this cell phone, which you could put in your pocket and go play golf or go to the restaurant. And that phone in your pocket would ring rather than the room phone. Not bad. And if you wanted to make a call instead of a dollar a minute, you would make the call directly to the number you want to dial from the cell phone we gave you or loaned you. And it would uh, redirect it through the hotel switch, making the hotel a telephone company. What a great idea. Sounds good, doesn't it? It does. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the why this didn't take off. As right. And yeah. so yeah, there were three of us and we made this thing with the help of some others. And you heard about the Korean company and all. And we had them in Ritz Carlton's and Lermitage and uh, uh, Waldorf Astoria and lots of great four and five star hotels. Expensive big switch in the hotel switch room. And then these phones in every single room and two batteries so that they wouldn't run out of batteries uh, and a charger. All of this in a room, right? So, uh, you know, 800 of them in a hotel, not small at all and not cheap. And I decided to lease them because I figured I'd be Xerox. You know, Xerox made a lot of this money leasing the 901s and the 908s because they would lease them forever. And that was a very bad decision. I'm telling you this now, you know, in confidence. <laughs> so three years later, we read in every paper in America that the digital phone had been released with roaming plans. You could buy the phone for 40 bucks in those dollars. You could roam by buying a plan for 40 bucks in those dollars. And so every one of us who traveled, even me, even though I had those phones everywhere, still went out and bought us a digital phone. And all those phones and all those hotels went fallow. You know that when the lease was up, they would make the call. 
you know, take your damn phone and take your switch and take these batteries and put them wherever you want to put them. And uh, that uh, was the end of and the beginning of a garage full of things for each of the three of us, uh, two of them in Boston and one here. And uh, so we lost, I lost, I was the only investor. I lost a million two on that. And the question I'm asking as we talk in this podcast is, who in the hell didn't know that there would be digital phones? I mean, how were we so insulated? Weren't there at least 10,000 people in the industry that knew digital phones were coming? And the lesson there is obvious. Why didn't we do any marketing, any research, anything that would tell us before we lost the money? Well, that was one story. <laughs> that yeah. was... Two stories. I'm done. Those are the bad ones. And there are a lot more, but I'm not going to tell them. What, are, what is the main? Sorry, I, I love that story because I, I, I watched your TED talk when you talked about it as well. I told that is, story. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is the main? Like you said, there was 260 uh, plus uh, uh, companies that you invested in. 40 plus have made, uh, you know, gone public or all that. And a bunch of lost, right? So about 200, they're either out of business or they're not talking to you. What are the themes? Like when you invested in those 200, if you were bucketing them in themes, what were the themes as to why you invested and why they, uh, they're not successful? Okay. Now the uh, first item of the subject of my book, the book called Extending the Runway, the first book I ever wrote. Uh, it was called Better Than Money. I rewrote it and called it Extending the Runway, is if it makes my heart go faster. So it was obvious to me that there are businesses that were investable. In the early days, I had a little competition and I was able to make some and I'll give you some stories. But uh, it uh, was the reason why I made the investments. Now, the bottom line is when you do the math, and I haven't done the math for you, the amount of money that I've made, which has been a lot over the years, Two and a half percent of all of my investments make 90% of all of my wealth. You could do better in uh, Baccarat. <laughs> you could do better with double zeros in roulette. It's more fun, right? It's more it fun. It is more fun. Well, it takes a little longer in my case, 11 years rather than about 30 seconds. But uh, yes, <laughs> that is how it happens. What about the people? I would always say it's also got to be the, the the leadership and stuff like that. Like if you're, you got to meet with them. They got to be smart. They got to be bright and you got to be aligned to them. Like sort of like in how they see the world. Is that true? Or is it usually more well, about technology? Jamie, you were in one of those businesses. So, you know, that's true. I know. Uh, that's yeah. why I joined. That's why I came. <laughs> I, I bought, I, I was working at a company. I bought uh, the company called people. AI. I bought it. I was the customer. And then I said to him, let me know if there's anything ever opening because I love this product. And then I met because I met the people and stuff like that. And I came over. But that's me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit warped in my head, I guess. But I'm wondering, does that person or those people really take into consideration? All right. So now I'm going to play Carmack the Magician. You said people AI. So it was probably between 2008 and 2009. Well, say that again? No, I, I just joined. I've only been here about seven months. They invented the name between oh. 2008 and 2009. Yeah, probably six years ago. Probably invented the name, but the company's been around for six years. If it were the year 1998, your company would be called People.com. Yes, 100%. And if it were 2008 and 2009, maybe a little later, it'd be called People AI. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. Next year, it'll be People Robot. 
<laughs> it'll be something because people want to have uh, inventors want to have some kind of a name people recognize. Yeah. I mean, I, I joined the company because I love the product. So it made my heart, like you just said, your heart uh, get, I, I met the people. And then to me, it was the venture. Like we've got an iconic and, and a couple other venture capital, big names behind it Good. with a lot mm-hmm. of money. So I'm sort of like all three of those check, check, check. When can I get started? You know? Okay. I'm not going to ask you how it ended. <laughs> still going. Still going. Now my next Good. question is right now, today with Silicon Valley, the way it is, as you know, the valuations have gotten out of control and there are layoffs going right and left as an investor on the outside or not. I mean, you're still involved, but as an investor looking at it from that glass, this correction one is probably overdue. And two, Mm -hmm. uh, how long do you think it's going to be before the Silicon Valley licks their wounds and gets going again? We've got two years, but uh, it started six months ago. So we've got a year and a half. Nobody can be precise in their estimate of it because there are too many external factors, yeah. uh, black swans, things that are happening that we can't control. Uh, but if it's two years, which is a, a pretty good guess, you'll find that the valuations, let me give you some examples. Uh, SaaS companies, software as a service, which are the companies that are getting the most attention nowadays, other than uh, internet games, which are gigantic other than robotics, which are big, other than AI, which are giant. Uh, Those businesses, SaaS businesses, are down to 56% of their value Mm -hmm. as that value was stated in December of 2021. Every one of the early stage businesses especially are down, but that one is kind of shocking. We can expect a pre-revenue business to get uh, about a half of the valuation offer it would have gotten Uh, six months ago, seven months ago. And that's because we have to invest low to sell high, right? I mean, you've heard that one before. Yeah. And if if Silicon Valley had gotten out of control, their lowest valuation was 5 million. They were giving eight to 10 million valuation to startups with no revenue and no proof. And you mentioned a minute ago, the team. That's one of the things I talk about in the book. Uh, It's got to have a team. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't have a team to get you to break even, you usually destroy a company in replacing people who were founders. And that hurts. So it's just one of the things you have to watch out for is, is that team capable of getting you to break even, which is a proxy for stability. So with all of those things and all those valuations down, it's a great time to invest. Does that surprise you? Right now <laughs> is a great, a great time, time to invest. To yeah. Seven months ago was not, right? Yeah, right. And so, uh, yeah, if you invested seven months ago, it was like buying public stock at the top. You didn't want to do that. You didn't yeah. know you were doing that. So one of the one of the things I heard is every time the um, interest rate goes up by a point or 100 basis points, whatever, it, it ruins the uh, or takes away the SAS multiple by 10 points. I've never uh, heard that. Uh, certainly I don't know if that's true. That. I didn't know if that was math. I think it was just hearsay now that you're, you've never heard that. I was like, really? I've never heard that. Um, but it almost aligns in, in a lot of ways. Uh, just, But I think it's just somebody doing math. I was curious if you knew that. Well, I can prove the numbers as far as the uh, uh, early stage valuation. 
There are several sources. PitchBook actually contacts each one of the companies, uh, which is a really good thing. And there are a couple of other sources like that that don't go to that depth. But uh, we get monthly reports, and those monthly reports are accurate, I think. And they are, and they actually drive people. So if they're accurate or not, they're believable. Yeah. Uh, years ago, uh, my industry, which was hotel, computer reservations, and front office, uh, had 80 entrants that I could count in the U.S., and I did count them, and I was following them, and I was trying to value them based upon the number of employees or the number of uh, installations they would brag about. And we would guess there were probably 80 more internationally. Now, of course, that number is a lot higher, even though consolidation has taken away the big ones. And so I would try and put a value to the industry, and I put $400 million. Now, remember, this was a lot a long time ago, so 400 million is like 2 billion today. Uh, and I repeated that number often. And suddenly I began to hear that number back, not only in this country, but other countries from other people. They didn't know the source, but they knew that the industry was worth $400 million. And so the answer is nobody knows. This whole thing can be made up by a single person that happens to have a stage and repeats it often and often. <laughs> <laughs> so be a little aware that uh, when you read it in the New York Times, it may have gotten two sources, but those sources may have invented the number. Oh, that's crazy. That, that's a great story, a great analogy. I, I agree with you with what you just said. Well, another question I got for you is um, in regards to companies that are in high growth mode, right? And we're hitting this recession. What would be an indication to some of our listeners that it's probably time to uh, get polish off your resume. I, I think everyone should always have their resume updated, but polish off their resume and look for an exit plan, especially if you're in a growth uh, company, a high growth company or, or expected to grow company. Is there any indication that a sales rep or anyone can start realizing, Oh, this is not. Uh, that 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 be complex question, Jamie. <laughs> I know it is a very complex. I don't, this is, by the way, I don't think what you're going to say is a formula for everyone. I'm just trying to get an opinion here. Okay. So let me try and answer it. First of all, uh, this is the era of the great resignation. That great resignation has happened, not just in the food service industry where, you know, minimum wage was barely making for the people. It was happening for the highly paid software engineers. Why? Because they were portable. And so I am uh, the chairman of ABL, which is a CEO roundtable organization, has uh, uh, three roundtables for tech CEOs and four or five for medical, pharma, and bio CEOs. And uh, I attend two of the roundtable meetings a month. They're half a day each, and so I don't spend that much time. Uh, and Every time I call in on the Zoom meetings, which are two out of three, one is live and two are Zoom. Uh, that's the way we would handle the, the hybrid. Every time I call in, the uh, younger CEOs, we have to ask them where they are. And somebody will say, well, today I'm in Portugal. And another will say, today I'm in Costa Rica, or I'm in Argentina, or they are traveling all over the world running their companies. And the software engineers are doing the same thing. They're moving out of the valley. You've probably read this. And they're moving into places that are flyover states. Great. Kansas City. I love it. Love anywhere in Ohio. Oh, there are a lot of places where they can move, where they can buy an estate for what they used to have for an apartment. 
Uh, and so it's happening. The answer is, therefore, it depends on what your real reason for wanting to move away is. If you're moving away from a company because you don't like management, there are like five reasons that are published that are the most uh, often answered when people are asked. Uh, I don't have an upward mobility in my job. That's number one. Uh, I don't like what management is doing and the way they're directing me. That's number two. Uh, I don't like having to come into the office all the time. I want the chance to have some days working from home. That's number three now. It was number nothing before a pandemic. Uh, number four is I really don't believe in the mission of this company. Think of DEI or DEIJ. Um, there are a lot of young people now in uh, Generation Z who are voting with their jobs for the kind of thing their company is telling them they believe in. And there are more, but those are the first five. Uh, so to answer your question, I have to ask a question. Are you the hypothetical person really thinking that this is driving you? Or is it just because you're not making enough money and you want to get out of there? Uh, see, it's not, it's not simple anymore. Maybe it never was. Uh, so first of all, I started all this at the age of 15. I really started at 13, but I don't tell anybody that. That was when for my bar mitzvah, I received enough money to buy a tape recorder. And I started using that recorder to record things that I could uh, kind of sell, you know, like weddings. And uh, at the age of 15, I uh, did my fictitious firm name registration and bought a lathe. That's what uh, you cut the first acetate record on and uh, began offering records rather than just handing a tape to somebody. And uh, I had to give it a name, so I called myself Custom Fidelity Records. And uh, at the age of uh, 16, I uh, began doing this seriously and making some money at it. And at the age of 17, as a senior in high school, I produced a record to sell to my high school friends there were 1,200 people in my high school. I sold 1,200 records of the sounds of the school year. And uh, that was, uh, well, well enough done that uh, principals of other schools started to call. Uh, that record won the Bank of America Award, the uh, Walt Disney Award for Innovation. Uh, and so it got a lot of attention. By the way, the Walt Disney Award was a date night pass for a full summer for two people absolutely all expenses paid at Disneyland. I took a different date every night, Friday and Saturday for the entire summer that year. Back to the subject. That's so, living good. I uh, began producing uh, records for uh, inner fraternity sings, uh, Christmas musicals, spring sings, you can name them. They were vanity press records for schools, colleges, churches, whatever. And uh, I had been communicating through this brand new little magazine called High Fidelity uh, with writing letters in, and they were published. And the letters would say, are there any other teenagers out there? In the end, there were 52 of them that I communicated with. And although some of them turned over and uh, new ones came along over time, it turned out that when I began doing this for a living as I was a freshman in college, I communicated with the 52. And I said, uh, send me your tapes, keep the money that you make when you charge people for making those tapes. And I'll give you 20% of the records that I make for you, give you back the records, you've charged the uh, organization and send me the money, less your 
And uh, that was how it all began. And that record company put me through college. And three years later, was able, I made a lot of money. Three years later, I built a building, two-story building. And two, three years after that, we outgrew that two-story building and I moved, I bought a building in Hollywood. And then I was heavy into vertical integration. We bought the record presses, the printing presses, the machines that wrap the covers, uh, shrink wrap machines, the whole thing. So that in one building, you could come in into our recording studio or with a tape and a week later walk out with a finished LP. It was the only building, it was the only company like that on the West Coast. What was the most famous uh, singer that went through your building? Uh, now, this is a few years ago, so you're going to have to stretch and you may or may not remember. The Limelighters were a very uh, impressive group on RCA. And uh, their lead singer, Glenn Yarborough, was uh, the first uh, that we signed in the commercial label. Uh, Sonny Terry, Brownie McGee were famous in Memphis. And uh, uh, we assigned them. Dennis Weaver couldn't sing a note, but uh, he had a name. And my A&R person signed him. I don't know why. Uh, that was $50,000 down the drain when we went to Nashville to record that one. Uh, but the one that sold the most copies, I want to buy the world a Coke. I want to teach the world to sing. Really? That's crazy. Remember Don Draper in the last edition? Yeah. yeah uh, the yeah. very last issue of uh, Mad Men? The last thing he did was to go and uh, meditate. And then his meditation produced the idea for the Coke song. That wasn't real, but that was the way it was played out. Uh, and the Coke song was gigantic. Everybody remembers who's been around in 1970, whatever years that was. Uh, the Kids on the Hill. Oh, yeah, I remember it all. Singing the song. So I know you said High Fidelity, which is one of my favorite movies. That wasn't an inspiration for that movie at all, was it? The, the, no. the name High Fidelity. Oh. No, and so there are other stories, and we don't have time to tell yes, them. I'm, I know. I'm sorry. I tried to register the name Custom Fidelity. I tried to register it on the principal register of the patent office, and I was immediately opposed, sued by Audio Fidelity Records and by Mercury, who had a sub label called Custom High Fidelity, and. Uh, I didn't know anything. I was scared to death. I didn't know anything about how to respond to a lawsuit, especially a federal lawsuit. So I went to uh, the law library in Los Angeles. I researched. I found what form I would use. I wrote to the judge, not on a form. And I said, I am a poor little teenager, freshman in college. Uh, I'd like to defend myself. Can I? And the judge says, sure, you can if you're really ready to do that. And I said, I can't do anything else. So I did. Took a year and a half. Uh, I filed all the forms. They filed all the forms. It was uh, kind of fun because I called Billboard magazine and told them I was in the middle of this. I got a front page story called uh, David and Goliath uh, on in Billboard. And in the end, the judge ruled that Mercury had to deregister its trademark. Audio Fidelity had to deregister its trademark. And I never got my trademark. We just had to compete without trademarks. Wonderful exit that started with Audio Fidelity writing me a letter telling me they would pay for my stationery if I would change my name. <laughs> That's crazy. Anyway, we became uh, uh, a large enough manufacturer, you know, that LPs became nothing over time. In 1990, LPs were all but gone. And my little plant could have made the world's output of LPs. 
But of course, that day is long gone, and LPs now sell more than DVD and DVDs, CDs, excuse me. Uh, so that's a business that uh, you don't want to be in today, but then again, a lot of people are. Had I kept that equipment, I paid $60,000 for a lathe made in Germany. Today, it'd be 900000 I paid 8000 for each press, semi-automatic press that press the records, put the plastic in and the labels. 8000 for each. Today, you'd have to spend 125000 for the same press. Wouldn't it have been nice to put that in my garage rather than those things for uh, <laughs> the, the telephones? Now, Dave, yep. you, you got some, some good ones to tell. Do you have a certain email that you bring around? You with keep you pushing me on that, and yes, I, I can. There, there isn't an angel investor in the universe that hasn't heard this story at least once. Uh, however, you guys are not angel investors, and so I guess I have a new audience here. That's what Sassful is all about, right? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So uh, here it comes. I had a uh, chief programmer. Um, let me go back on one step before that. The year was 1986, and uh, it was American Airlines that first came out with multiple pricing for the same seat on a plane for the same flight. In other words, uh, revenue management or yield management. And they invented it, and uh, it really got the attention of the hotel chains. So in early 1987, about six months later, I was called to uh, the uh, uh, CXO offices of Hyatt and of Marriott to talk to them about uh, this thing called yield management and could it be done in hotels. Marriott at the time had three levels of pricing. If they could see that they were 80% occupied as of some certain future date, they might raise their rates 10% and on and on. It was really an elementary way of doing that. And so I came back after having talked to them about it and realized that there was an industry there, I thought. And so I hired three uh, programmers, AI, artificial intelligence, there you are, Jamie, mm -hmm. programmers from MIT, and the year was 1987 early. And, uh, and designed for them a yield management system for hotels based on AI. And the inputs would be same date last year, same weekday last week, uh, competition and competition's pricing, um, weather predictions, uh, games or other things that were in the city that day that might drive uh, revenue. And then the machine would predict the prices, change the prices, just like the airlines were doing. And we would have a much greater income stream. That was the thing, and it actually worked. Uh, I partnered with TI, Texas Instruments, that had a machine called the Explorer that was meant just for this language of Lisp, the AI language. So we really were early, really early in doing something. And I priced it at $150,000, which would be $500,000 a day. We sold exactly two of them. Now, we were the hit of the show, the international show that year. In fact, we set the room when the uh, head of Marriott's IT had a panel composed of me and a user uh, and one other uh, hotel CIO. And uh, we set the room for 300 and 600 people showed up. That has never happened since, never happened before in that show. And uh, I wrote the headline story, which was the cover story for the Industries Magazine. 
which no vendor has ever done before or since. It was a big deal. And yet we sold only two because the managers and the owners didn't believe that this was this magic was going to work. So I bought back both machines and I had my chief programmer, whose name was Tom, Tom Showenoff, I've repeated his name often over the years, uh, reprogram it in the language of our reservation system, losing about 20% of what the uh, AI system could do and making it an $8,000 checkoff item when people bought systems. And we believe that is how uh, yield management got into the hotel industry because people just kept checking the bots and buying the systems. Okay, so that's the name, Tom Shonoff. Now you've come to your story. I had to get you said, okay? So a few years after that, Tom got tired of programming, even though he had 26 programmers that reported to him. And he said, I want to be a marketing guy. And I said, uh, marketing department's full, Tom, and I can't do that. And besides, thousands of hotels and 26 people all rely upon you and I just can't do it. So Tom voted with his job. Jamie, you talked about doing that, getting up and getting out. And he left, sold his home, happened to be at the high at that particular time. It was 1990. And I didn't hear from him again for five years. 1995, I get this email on, this is where Pete's uh, reference to AOL comes in, AOL.com, which was at that time where you would ordinarily have your email. I hate to say that because it's so embarrassing today, but uh, I had an AOL address. And so I get this email uh, from Tom and I've memorized it. I actually have it, a copy of it here on my desk so I could actually read it again. I, I take it wherever I go. And it says uh, in part, uh, hello again, Dave. I'm employee number seven at a Seattle-based internet retail startup called amazon.com. He was the head of marketing for Amazon and I wouldn't let him do marketing for me. So uh, he told the story in this uh, one-page email about he and Jeff and the others stopping at one o'clock every day and packing the boxes in the hallway, getting ready for the post office that day. It was two weeks into Amazon. Jeff's mother had given him $300,000 to start the company. This was the second round. And so at the end of the email, Tom says, uh, Jeff is looking, he didn't say Jeff, my founder is looking for uh, uh, capital seeking. And if I had the $100,000, I would certainly uh, do it. This from a dubious uh, insider. And so uh, uh, he said, uh, I'd like to introduce you to Jeff. I'm sure he'd take your money. And I wrote back. I, um, I showed Pete a picture of my, uh, air, my airplane, my twin that I had owned for 18 years. Uh, and I could have flown to Seattle. And in fact, uh, in the computer business, I had programmed for uh, Red Robin restaurants located in Seattle. So I had driven or flown up there several times. It was no big deal. But I had rules now that I was really an angel investor. And so one of the rules was I needed to be able to be close enough to drive to the company so I could be on the board or the CEO coach or a lead director. So I wrote him back. The most famous words in the history of angel investing. Quote, gee, Tom, great to hear from you. Keep me advised. Two years later, Amazon goes public. All right. Amazon goes public at uh, $1.97 after a couple of splits. So that's your number. 
And the number, 100,000, would have been 33 million. Now, early stage investors are required to keep the stock for six months. And let's say I kept it for a year. 33 million would have doubled, 66 million. And I told those stories, that story, often on the stage of the Angel Capital Association meetings. And as I would give a keynote, that would be the final story. Well, lately, I tell one more little bit to the story just to make it updated. So I don't have it in front of me today, but it was last Friday that I looked up the price. And there was a 20 for one split uh, two months ago. And so the price is now, oh boy, I wish I had it in front of me. Let's say it's uh, $210. I'm making that up. But do you know what the, if I had never sold a share, what the value of that 100,000 would be as of last Friday? Go ahead. Your turn, Jamie. Two billion. Two billion. More. Oh, God. What? Even even after the drops that happened in the tech industry, and Amazon did suffer like everybody else, $3.3 billion. Off a $100,000 investment. That's crazy. No, I would have never kept it all. And you know that those things just fly and like that. Everybody has a story. That was one. I got another story. Only one one more. I've got many stories. I think you got a better return on investment. You got a better one. Yeah, thank you. Indeed. Okay, so uh, I was the uh, first investor. It's my second company that I invested in, in a Santa Barbara company by a kid, kid, a young man that had just graduated from UCSB, Santa Barbara, and he had an idea, and it was photo databases for DOS way back in the day. In other words, he was the first one to be able to put photos in a DOS file that you could show off. Think of the real estate industry, the MISs, and all the other industries that needed photos but never could do it until that day. It was a big deal. We made a lot of money when we sold that to a public company. Not my story, because I I kept my stock in a public company, and it went from 5 to 71, and I sold it at 71, and that's a good story. That's not the story. So the company was moved to the parent in Denver. And uh, my entrepreneur that I was coaching for all those years as we built the company moved, of course, with his company. And uh, about three years later, he contacts me and said, Dave, you are a great coach. And I want to reward you by giving you a little piece of a new company I'm founding. I'm leaving the company that I sold and I'm going to call it Ping Identity. I'll tell you what that means in a minute. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to make a uh, sidecar LLC a little LLC that some of my friends are invited to invest in that will become an investor along with the VCs. But you're going to get a sidecar VC, uh, sidecar LLC investment at the original organization price. And you know, when you start a company, you put in $1,000 or $500, you don't put in 10 million. You get that from the investors later on. So he said, I'll give you 22% of this sidecar LLC if you'll write me a check for $30. (laughs) So I said, sure, I'll do that. And I wrote him a check for 30 and I uh, photographed it or copied it on my copy machine, put it in a manila folder and forgot it. Now I knew that he was growing this company. The company was the very first single sign-on. If you think of big companies that have seven or eight applications, you have to sign in seven times. It could drive you nuts. 
This was a single sign-on company and the first one. Now it's considered common. But uh, Ping Identity is still at the center of all of this. Microsoft was one of his first customers. And so kind of forgot about it. But he did invite me to keynote his uh, employees conference. And I knew something was going on. It was in Denver. This was years later. And there were 300 employees at the time. So I knew something was happy. Anyway, it was uh, years after that that I read in the trade publications that Vista Equity had paid $600 million to buy the company. $600 million. So I call Andre. And I say, Andre, <laughs> remember my little $30 investment? And he laughed. He said, I knew you called, Dave. I wasn't going to call you. I was going to wait for you. And he said, I have it here on my desk. How much do you think your $30 is worth? And he said, $360,000. That's not a lot of money, but that is 12,000 times my money. And that's the story. So I've been writing $30 checks to entrepreneurs since that time. None of them have made anything yet, but who knows? Someday a $30 checks could be worth another 300 and something thousand dollars. And I'll have another story to tell. <laughs> Dave Burkus. Oh man, I could hear that a hundred times. Hey, what's the what's the best way for our uh, new listeners and viewers to learn more about you? And because I mean, you have a blog, you have a couple new posts up on uh, a, a pretty good one, Jamie, on the definition of what a contractor is. Uh, what are some of the the URLs people should take a look at, Dave? There are two of them that I'd uh, hit you at. Number one is Berkus.com, B-E-R-K-U-S.com. And from that, you can subscribe to my weekly emails. Those weekly emails are the blog. And so uh, that's a way of getting them easy. Or if you want to have the history of all those blogs and uh, pictures and all the things that go along with it, it is berkonomics.com, B-E-R-K-O-nomics.com. Uh, and so those are the two. And then you can go to my page on Amazon as an author and you'll find 14 books. And these stories, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them because I learn a new story every time I lose a book. <laughs> and so uh, there are a lot of those books and a lot of those stories and they're fun to tell, as you just heard. We'd like to thank you for listening and watching and a special thank you to our Patreon supporters, Demand Farm, Winalytics, Trent S. and Aaron J. Demandfarm.com, unlock key account growth, smart software to bring account planning and relationship intelligence into your CRM, making key account management practice data-driven, predictable, and scalable. Go to Demandfarm.com, ask for Iron Man. Hey, check out Brent Keltner's Revenue Acceleration Playbook Masterclass at Winalytics.com. In eight weeks, help your sales and go-to-market team start to build the mindset and skills needed to succeed in a new buyer environment. Sign your team up for the Masterclass today at Winalytics.com. If you'd like to help us out, we'll gladly take your support at Patreon.com slash Sassholes. Dave Burkus, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank Pete you. And Jamie, thank you. Great time. And the uh, oh. subject, or at least the title of this, is one I'll repeat to others. Well. <laughs> People love the name. People love the yeah. name. That's about it. Cue the music. Till their defeat. But they were no test for the brain of man and his rhythms are concrete. Now that the big catfish don't jump and the eagles no longer soar, 
Our earth is marred, nature's scarred. Her balance is no more. No taste for the brain of man and 